Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to Proverbs 13. We ended last week at Proverbs 13, 13. You are what you are. You're not, follow me here, what you're not. Solomon is going to talk a good deal tonight about you are what you are and that you're going to have certain characteristics that demonstrate that that's who you are. This has been a pet peeve of mine for many, many years. That's right. I have pet peeves. I have all these peeves, and I keep them as pets. I have a whole flock of them, and I never mind. It's been one of my pet peeves when people say to me, oh, yeah, I believe the Bible, or oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but then their walk the way they conduct themselves, the way they interact with other people, the, the way that they live their life doesn't seem to demonstrate any sort of commitment to what the Bible actually says. It's like, yeah, I believe the Bible, except in those places where it tells me how to act. You know, I believe the Bible. It's just that whole murder thing I don't agree with. And you don't really get an option if you're a Christian if you believe, fear, reverence God, then you react in every condition in life as though you actually do revere God, that you do respect God, that you do respect his word, and you're going to react accordingly. Now, last week when we got to verse 13, we were talking about one who despises the word and who will still be in debt to it. Now, I applied that last week in a spiritual way, and the analogy that I created had to do with Micah's car, and I said, some of you have not seen Micah's car in the parking lot, but the fact that you have not seen it, or the fact that you may even disagree with it, does not change the reality that that's Micah's car out there. During the week, I thought of an even better analogy, and gee, I hate to have a good analogy go to waste. Tell us about it. I will. I will <laughs> tell you about it. I'm so glad you asked. Um, it's like this. The word of God is the word of God, regardless of who agrees that it's the word of God, and regardless of who adheres to it as though it is the word of God. It is still the word of God. It is self-authenticating. The fact that you don't get it, or that you don't adhere to it, or you don't believe it, or that you're blind to it changes nothing. Here's the analogy that I thought of. You have heard me through the years talk about my blind friend, John, who recently passed away. John had a sense of what the sun was. He loved riding in the car with the window down during the summer because he could feel the heat of the sun on his skin. And so heat on his skin gave him a sense of sun. Whatever the sun was, whatever he imagined it to be, it at least had some bearing on his life. It authenticated itself. It proved itself. It put heat on his skin. Therefore, he had a concept of sun. But he had no concept of the moon. 
he would ask me sometimes, what is the moon? Now, of course, he's never seen it in the sky. I, when I was in Southern California, saw the effect that the moon had on the tides even. So the moon demonstrated itself to me because I could see it in the sky. I could watch it wax and wane. I knew the difference between a full moon and a quarter moon because I could see it up there. But the moon doesn't put any kind of feelings on your skin. It doesn't give you that same sense like the heat of the sun does. So John had never experienced the moon in any actual way. So... He was legitimately blind to the fact that the moon existed. The existence of the moon did not have any effect on his day-to-day -day life. Therefore, he could not conceive of the moon. Did John's lack of understanding of the moon eliminate the moon? No. No, the moon still exists. His inability to comprehend it change nothing about the actual existence of the moon. Do you get where I'm going here? Yeah. The word of God is still the word of God. The word of God is still true. The word of God still contains history and future that is going to work out exactly the way that the sovereign God of the Bible said that it's going to work out. And just because somebody on the planet is blind to that, just because somebody on the planet doesn't get it, doesn't see it, isn't affected by it, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That doesn't mean it's not real. And I think that's a lot of what Solomon has in mind when he's talking about the word and saying that someone who despises the word will be in debt to the word. Now, there is also an understanding and commentaries about this verse that don't see it in that sort of word of God melu. There is an interpretation, an understanding of this verse that is Solomon as the king has been laying out the necessity of listening to good advice, listening to the word of correction that has come from your parents or from anyone above you. And if you listen to that word, if you listen to that commandment, if you fear, if you respect the commandment, that you're going to be rewarded. But if you despise that word of advice, then you're still going to be in debt to that word of advice, basically because you know it. Somebody has told you what it is now, and therefore you're responsible for what you know. That is also a fair reading of verse 13. And yes, I do know that referring to the Bible, referring to the scriptures simply as the word, is a fairly recent invention. I mean, that's probably not the way that Solomon spoke. He may have referred to the law or the commandment of God or even to the scripture or to the prophets. He probably would not have referred to the scriptures as the word. That's a more current way of doing it. Nevertheless, I like the reading that says the one who despises the word is going to be in debt to it because as I began saying tonight, the word of God is the word of God, regardless of what anybody thinks of the word of God. So whichever of those two interpretations makes you comfortable, I just want to say that I do know those two different interpretations. And Solomon might very well just be saying, 
the one who despises the word of advice, the word of their father, the word of the king, the one who despises it is still going to be in debt to it because it's already been laid out. It's already been put in place. Therefore, you're responsible for it. That's a fair reading as well. But the one who fears or reverences a commandment, like a commandment from the king, is then going to be rewarded. So that's where we ended last week. I just wanted to clean that up. And at the same time say, you are what you are. That's where I began tonight. You, you, just, you are what you are. And Solomon is going to say several different ways through the balance of this chapter that you are what you are. And it does you no good to protest and say that you are something that you don't act like. In other words, guess what fools do? Fools do folly. Why do fools do folly? Because they they're fools. So then what do righteous people do? Righteous people walk in the directives and in the way of God. Solomon's going to get into that, and he's going to say it from many different angles as we read through it tonight. So I just want to emphasize again, you are what you are. Sadly, we live in a time, a culture that says uh, you can pretend to be something you're not, and you can identify as something that you're not, and you can be a boy and identify as a girl. When it comes to gender, people are playing this weird game these days where instead of there being two genders, there's about, what, 18, 19, 20, 105? Yeah, so many different genders now, and you get to pick your gender. Well, that is not accurate biblically nor biologically. The fact is you are what you are. And there's an example that I used to use. And uh, with Ming's allowance, I will, I will use this example again. I used to say, hey, look at me. I'm Chinese. You're not. See, you're not. <laughs> right? It took Ming like two seconds to go. You are. You're not. <laughs> okay, so why was she able so quickly to say, you're not. Because I can say I am. I can insist I am. I can tell people I am. I can walk around all day going, that's right, me, I'm Chinese. How can she say so quickly and assertively, you're not? It's because I don't have any of the characteristics of being Chinese. True? For one, I was just going to say, for one, I don't know the language. And so that, that's a dead giveaway. I, I'm not Chinese. Okay. So then somebody's walking into your life and they say, I'm Christian. But they have none of the characteristics of Christianity on them. They're not carrying any of the characteristics of what it is to be a Christian. So they say, I'm a Christian. Well, then your answer ought to be the same as Ming a minute ago saying, you're not. Because if they don't have the characteristics of Christianity, if they don't have the characteristics of being Bible-believing, God-following people, then no matter how many times they insist it, it's not true. You're not just because you say you are. If one day April walked in here and said, I'm a man now, we would all collectively say, you're not. Because she's just simply not. You get the idea? 
So Solomon is going to talk about you are what you are and what you are is demonstrated by how you act, by how you walk, by whether you have the characteristics of a righteous person or a fool. And if you have foolish characteristics, you can't say, oh, yeah, I'm really smart and really righteous and I'm walking, you know, in the fear of the Lord and all that. No, you're a fool because you're acting foolishly. And if a righteous person is acting foolishly, they're acting against character. Therefore, they cannot say that they are actually a wise, God-fearing, righteous person because they're acting a fool. You get it? The Bible is full of things that, that are identifiers. Christianity, God-fearing, Bible-believing is actually specific. It has a definition if you're going to say that you are a Christian, then there are defining characteristics that are part of what it is to be a Christian. Everybody okay with that? Yes. Okay. So then, starting at verse 14, it says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. In a moment, we're going to identify what that teaching of the wise is. The phrase is a fountain of life. What is a fountain? A fountain is an outspray of water. If you get yourself near the fountain, you're going to get wet. It's a place where people can drink. It's a place where people can be refreshed. And what that does, wise people instructing you in wisdom, that is going to turn you aside from the snares of death, from the traps that lead to death. When you wanted to catch a bird or catch an animal, you would lay a snare. You would lay a trap. And so Solomon is saying that death itself lays snares, lays traps. And as you're walking through this lifetime, you'll get caught in those traps if you're not paying attention to the teaching of the wise. So what is that teaching of the wise that you need to pay attention to? Well, there's actually a parallel to this verse that says the exact same thing in chapter 14, verse 27. Look over there. It says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Exact same analogy. So I would argue then that the fear of the Lord is the teaching of the wise. Because the teaching of the wise and the fear of the Lord both have the same result, which is it is a fountain of life. Fearing God, reverencing God, following after God's word, walking in the ways of the Lord brings about life, brings about refreshing, brings about necessary water. You're going to survive if you walk in the fear of the Lord. But then look at the second half of verse 27 of chapter 14. It says that one may avoid the snares of death. So it's an absolute parallel, these two Verses that we're looking at here, these two separate proverbs that Solomon spoke and someone wrote them down. In one case, he said that the teaching of the wise is that fountain of life. But as he has said over and over again, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So the teaching of the wise would include the necessity of the fear of the Lord. And that's the teaching that will deliver you from the traps of death. In this life, if you walk through this life walking after the course of God's counsel, 
walking after the fear and reverence of God and what he has said, then you're going to deliver yourself from the traps, from the snares that are laid all over the place out there. Here, I'll I'll give you a quick example. Um, I own a TV. Anybody here own a TV? Or am I the only one who owns it? Oh, good. You all own TVs. Okay, here's what I know about TV. Everything on it is really good, godly, and edifying. Everybody else got a TV just like mine? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> no, the things on TV, there's a great deal of it that is just not good or edifying. Hey, you know what? I have, follow me here, I have a computer. And, and not only do I have a computer that does computing and I compute on it with my computations, but it's connected via a wire to this thing that we call a worldwide web. Yeah. Where, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I can connect with all this other information. In fact, through the uh, interwebs, I have access to the collective knowledge of the whole wide world. And you know what's out there, it turns out? Nothing but good, edifying, wholesome stuff. No, it's not. The internet is a filthy place. In any given moment, the vast majority of the bandwidth that's being sucked up on the internet is being used for pornography. It's a terrible place. It can be a useful tool. We utilize it. We try to utilize it in a productive way. But the fact is, just like the rest of the world, it's a filthy place out there. So, TV can be pretty entertaining if you're careful about what you look at. Internet can be educational, entertaining, if you're careful about what you're looking at. But there's all these traps. There's all this stuff where you click one wrong place and all of a sudden your conscience is seared for the rest of your life because you've just seen stuff you didn't want to see. You hadn't even thought about. You hadn't even conceived of. And suddenly there it is in living color right in front of you on your computer screen. you got to be careful about the traps. You're just driving down the freeway, minding your own business, not doing any harm. And there's billboards by the side of the road. And some of the billboards I've seen out there are pretty racy. So you have an option. Keep your eye on the road or stare at the billboard and crash. You, You have the option to follow after the traps of this life or to escape those traps because of the fear of the Lord. What keeps you away from the traps on the internet? If it was just up to you and your flesh, you'd fall for every one of them. You'd be adding to the evil bandwidth out there. But the reason that any of us don't is because we fear God. Because we reverence God, because he's primary in our life, therefore, we try to live, try to act, try to proceed through this life in a way that honors him. And by doing so, we are avoiding the traps that lead to death. Got it? Got it. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Verse 14 of chapter 13 says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Verse 15. 
Good understanding produces favor. Does anybody in the room have an NIV on them? What does the NIV in 15 say? Good understanding wins favor. Good understanding wins favor. There is a translation, I thought it was the NIV, that says a good name produces favor. And so the word can be translated a couple ways. What it means in essence is to have a good reputation, to be able to walk among men in such a way that they know that you have wisdom, you have understanding, you have the fear of the Lord, you're fair in your business practices, you treat people well. When people know that about you, that produces favor. That makes people want to be your friend and help you out when you're in trouble and come alongside. But the way of the treacherous, that word treacherous, means sinners, the the people who are just always looking for another way to cause trouble, to be evil in this world. The way of the treacherous produces difficulty. So the contrast is between going through this life in a favorable way where graces are coming your way, where good is coming your way, versus going through this life with nothing but hardship, nothing but difficulty, nothing but trouble. And the difference between the two is the man who has a good reputation, a good name, a good understanding, well, then he wins favor. But the one who is treacherous, the one who is sinful, the one who is looking for how he can hurt other people, how he can take advantage of other people, his way is always going to be difficult. Because as I have said for weeks and weeks now, to be a good liar, you have to have a really good memory. And when you hurt people, it catches up with you. Verse 16. Every prudent man acts with knowledge but a fool displays folly. That's what I've been talking about tonight. You are what you are. You're going to act according to what you are. If you are a prudent person, a wise person, a person who thinks through things, a person who before they makes moves really gives consideration to what are the outcomes of this, person who's trying to help people, who's trying to be a prudent man, well then he, and this is almost axiomatic, well then he acts with wisdom. He acts with knowledge. Why does he act with knowledge as he walks through this life? Because he's a prudent man. So you can read it forward or backwards. A prudent man acts with knowledge, but a man who acts with knowledge is a prudent man. A person who stops and considers his way, thinks about what he's doing, thinks about whether that honors God or does it only honor himself. A person who thinks about, is this going to hurt other people? Am I taking advantage of other people? That kind of person is acting in the way of knowledge, and that's because he's a prudent man. But a fool is foolish. Is that clear enough? A fool acts with folly. So you can read that forward or backwards too. A person who is a fool is going to act foolish. But then you can read it backwards. A person who acts foolish is a fool. You are what you are. If you are a Bible-believing, God-fearing, Christian person, then you're going to act like a God-fearing, Bible-believing, Christian person. And you can read that forward or backwards. 
A Bible-believing, God-fearing Christian person walks like one, and the person who acts like one is one. You get it? But if you say, I'm a Bible-believing, God-fearing Christian person, and you're walking like the world, guess what? Axiomatically, you're not, even if you say you are. There's a phrase that I heard years ago that I've always sort of enjoyed that says, uh, if you think you're a leader, if you consider yourself a leader, I'm a leader of men. If you think you're a leader, You need to stop every once in a while and look behind you. (laughs) If there's no one there, you're not leading. Well, same thing here. If you say, I'm Bible-believing, I'm a Christian person, I'm a God-fearing person, that's who I am, but then you compare it to the Word of God and you're not acting according to the Word of God, you're not demonstrating an actual fear and reverence of God, then guess what? You're not. You're just not. I would advise, don't kid yourself. Or I use the word from the text, don't fool yourself. Because you're acting a fool. Either admit that you're not really a believer and go out and live like the sinful fool you are. Or if you're going to profess the name of Christ, walk, act as if you are a person who fears and reverences Christ. Does that make sense? Yes. Am I alone up here? No. You share in my pet peevery. Yes. (laughs) I'm not even sure that's a word, but it is now. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. Verse 17, a wicked messenger falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing Okay, now that has nothing to do with the proverb that was right before it. Remember that Solomon is a king, and one of the ways that he communicates with other people, other kings, other generals, one of the chief ways that he communicates is via messengers. He doesn't have telegraph or telephone or television. He doesn't have any way to communicate with other people. And so he would send envoys. Maybe he would write something out and then send them. But most often he would just say, say this. Say, the king says. Now go say that. And so he's saying here that a wicked messenger is the one who's going to fall into all kinds of trouble and adversity. The king is not going to approve of him. He's not going to have his job very long because he's a messenger who does not carry the king's message. But a faithful envoy or a faithful messenger brings healing. In other words, he brings comfort. He brings reassurance, not only to the people that he's carrying the message for, but then he's trustworthy to bring the proper message back. So when a trustworthy envoy would come back and speak to the king and say, so-and-so says this, the king could believe it because he was trustworthy. And that takes us to verse 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. But he who regards reproof will be honored. We've seen this several times now, the distinction between people who don't want to be reproved, don't want to be corrected, versus the person who actually accepts discipline. 
Here, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. If nobody has told you this before in your life, then it's good you're here tonight because, hey, I'm gonna tell you something you didn't know. And so if you've never heard this, hang on to this. This will help you a lot as you go forward through your life. Here it is. Um, other people other than you know stuff. Okay, hold on to that through the rest of your life. Because the other people who actually know other stuff that you don't know, those people can be very helpful and very instructive to you. And they are the people who sometimes are going to correct you. And how you accept that correction says a lot about who you are and what you want in this life. Do you actually want to become a better person? Do you want to become a wiser person? Do you want to be more prudent? Do you want to conduct your life in a way that people are going to respect? Or do you just not like being corrected? Now, I have some expertise on this subject because uh, I've told you before that in my younger days, my ego was the size of, let's say, Texas. I mean, I was a very egocentric young man simply because I had achieved things that my friends my age hadn't achieved. I had, therefore, dig me. And I walked through life with that sense of nobody gets to tell me nothing. Nobody gets to instruct me. Nobody gets to correct me. And if you try to do that, you're my enemy. Until the day that my brother said to me, has it occurred to you that nobody likes you? I've told you that story before. And of course, I argued with him. I said, what, no, what do you call, I, I, everybody likes me. Look, night by night, I'm sitting in front of thousands of people and I'm the loudest, best lit person in the room. Everybody likes me. His answer was, okay, so you're at LAX, which is the Los Angeles airport. You're at LAX at three in the morning. Who are you gonna call to pick you up who doesn't work for you? I couldn't think of anybody. Couldn't come up with anybody. I realized that's how off-putting I actually was. Then God got a hold of me, and as God got a hold of me and started instructing and correcting me, I came to understand what I just told all of you. Oh, it turns out there's other people who know stuff. And the more I listened to them, the more I grew in the grace and knowledge of God and my understanding of the Bible, my understanding of what was important in life. I'll tell you, during those years right there, my dad got exponentially smarter. It was astounding. The same guy that I wouldn't listen to when I was 18, suddenly I called him about everything. Should I do this, Dad? Should I buy this? Should I, what do you think? What do you, he became a source of wisdom in my life. Just simply because I had to come to the realization that instruction and correction was actually for my good. That people who loved me were correcting me, like saying, has it occurred to you that nobody actually likes you? That's a correction that I desperately needed. And my brother wasn't saying it to me because he was trying to make me feel small. He was saying it because he loved me and he hated to see me going down that road. So the Bible says that poverty and shame is going to come to the person who neglects discipline. If discipline comes your way, if correction comes your way, 
if instruction comes your way and you neglect that, you push that away from you, you go on with your life, you can't tell me nothing, I know everything. Well, the end result of that is going to be poverty and shame in your life because eventually nobody's going to like you. Nobody's going to want to be around you. It's going to be difficult to hold down a job. You know how much fun it is to go to work when there's somebody there that just everybody's uncomfortable around. So poverty, he says, and shame is going to come to the one who neglects discipline. But the positive statement is he who regards reproof will be honored. Not only honored by the king in raising him up to places where he can be trusted, where he's going to be respected, but just in day-to-day life, somebody who can take criticism well is somebody who gets advanced because when your boss comes to you and says, this is the way I'd rather you do it, and you can admit, yeah, that's the way I'm going to do it from now on, guess what? Next time he's looking for somebody to advance, you're it. Am I telling the truth, Steve? Yeah, this is just the way that the real world works. So it's advantageous to you to regard reproof, to understand correction from other people, because as I said, other people know stuff. There's a concept in psychology that's called the theory of the generalized other. Basically, when children are really small, They think whatever they think and feel is what everybody must think and feel. They don't understand the generalized other. The concept of the generalized other is when they come to understand that not everybody thinks the way they think. And you know the first place that they discover that? When they hear no. Because they think Yes! They think whatever I want is what everybody wants for me. Everybody wants me to do whatever I want to do. And then somebody says no to them, and they start developing the understanding of the generalized other. People who are autistic, like my son, they go through many, many years of not understanding the generalized other. Part of autism is thinking that whatever thoughts and feelings you're having are the thoughts and feelings that everybody's having, which is why young autistic people can't understand why people pick on them. Why do people bully them? They can't comprehend it because they're busy liking people, so they assume everybody's busy liking people, and then they're surprised when there are people who don't like them. It makes the world a very foreign place for them. When you're mature, when you're growing up, when you have understanding and wisdom of this world, you understand, you conceive of the generalized other, and you recognize that not everybody prioritizes what you prioritize. Not everybody's thinking what you're thinking. Not everybody's feeling what you're feeling. And some of those other people's thoughts and feelings and considerations actually have more validity than what's going on in your head. And so it's really good to listen. And then if they reprove you, if they correct you, if they instruct you, it's really good to regard that. 
because you're going to grow as an individual, you're going to grow as a person, you're going to grow as a member of society, you're going to grow just in being honored, in being befriended. There are so many advantages to accepting correction that I think that's why Solomon keeps going back to it over and over and over again and saying, understand that correction and discipline is good for you. At the end of this chapter, he's going to say in verse 24, he who spares the rod hates his son. In other words, if you don't correct, if you don't discipline, if you don't properly discipline your son, you hate your son. There is this very pro-youth, pro-children. What about the children? I believe the children are the future. There's this very children-centric thing going on in America right now that isn't the way that the Bible describes it. The Bible says that the way life ought to work is that people who are grown, who know stuff, who've had the experience, who understand the way the world works, ought to discipline their sons in order to bring them up in the nurture, in the admonition of the Lord, but also in the way that they understand correction. A few minutes ago, I said that the first way that any child comes to grips with the generalized other is when he hears no. So actually correcting your children, disciplining your children, guiding your children is good for them. That is an act of love. That is not an act of discipline for discipline's sake. You work with kids all the time, April. Is everything I'm saying here correct so far? They can't hear you on the internet. Yes, Yes, absolutely, Jim, you got it. That's what we're looking for. Never mind. We'll get to verse 24 in a minute. Verse 19. Desire realized is sweet to the soul. That phrase was also used back in verse 12. Verse 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but the desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Same idea here, desire realized or desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. Last week we talked about that desire and it was in contrast to hope deferred. So we Concluded that he's talking about good desire, good hopes, good things that you're looking forward to and anticipating. And then when they actually come to fruition, that's actually good. It's sweet to the soul. It's satisfying, especially when you look at the second half of verse 19. It says, but it is an abomination. That's toyava. It is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. There we are again at you are what you are. You can read that forwards or backwards. It is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. If somebody refuses to depart from evil, they're a fool. Departing from evil is one of the marks of what it is to be a wise person, a God-fearing person. If you think that it is toy of awe, that it is an abomination, that it's silly to think about departing from evil, if every time you come up against the snares, the traps of this life, every opportunity to do evil that comes your way, you take advantage of it, well, then Solomon says here, you're a fool. It's axiomatic. It proves itself. If that's the way you act, you're a fool. Because an intelligent man is going to act righteously. Because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So 
Desire realized, good things that you hope for, the good desires that God has put into you, well, then it's sweet to your soul when they come to fruition. But on the other hand, it is unthinkable. It is an abomination to fools to depart from their evil. And I think what Solomon is saying is because they never depart from their evil, they never know what it is to have a good desire realized. A good desire realized is good for your soul. Sweet to the soul. But a fool's never going to have that. Verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. That's sort of axiomatic again. Solomon is just telling us stuff that, that on its face you go, yeah, that's, that's the way it works, especially when compared to, but the companion of fools is going to suffer harm. So it's wise for you to walk with wise men, and walking with wise men makes you wise. So if you're a wise person, an intelligent person, a thoughtful person, if you're a prudent person in this life, you want to hang out with other intelligent, wise, God-fearing, thinking people. Because iron does sharpen iron. And because walking with other wise and intelligent people, you're going to get appropriate reproof and correction and you're going to grow in your knowledge and you're going to have intelligent conversation and that is all good for you but the companion of fools is going to end up suffering harm if you hang out with foolish people here we'll test this one anybody here ever hung out with dumb people or am i the only one? Oh, okay good i'm glad to see a few other hands yeah, and, and did that ever go well? Was the end result of that ever, wow, I'm glad I did this? No, the result is always, okay, there's flashing blue lights, and well, the end result is always, wow, where'd my money go? The end result of it is always, I'll never do that again. Because if you hang out with fools, you're going to suffer harm. Look over at chapter 14, one more second. Verse 7, it says, leave the presence of a fool. Yeah, don't hang out with fools. Instead, if you're around somebody who's clearly a fool, leave. Get out of there. Get away from them. And then the second half of verse 7 says, or you will not discern words of knowledge. That's really interesting because Solomon is saying, if you're hanging out with fools, you're not going to understand. You're not going to discern words of wisdom, words of knowledge. When the good stuff comes your way, you're not going to be able to understand it because you're too busy playing the fool, hanging out with the fools. So there's no way that wisdom is going to get through to you because you and the rest of your fools are going to go, no, nah, don't need that. Nope. You and your gang of fools. Keep thinking of the famous last words. Here, hold my beer. <laughs> so true. Or the most famous last words in history. Do you know what they were? No. But I don't see a... <laughs> Verse 21. We're just going to get to the end of this chapter... I was hoping to get two verses into the next chapter, but we'll see if the clock will allow that. 
Adversity pursues sinners. This is one of the good reasons that you want to get away from the fools. Because adversity is coming. He here characterizes adversity and says that it actually looks for sinners. It looks for fools. It looks for people who are not God-fearing. Adversity, trouble, problems in life pursue those kinds of people. Adversity is out there looking for somebody it can be adverse to. It's kind of like all those commercials for the insurance company where there's that guy who is chaos or what is he? Mayhem. Mayhem. I'm mayhem. And in each of them, he's like, I'm the tree limb. In another one, I'm your cat. In another one, you know, I'm the other driver. I'm mayhem is going to find you one way or the other. The same way that that commercial personified mayhem that's what's happening here in adversity is pursuing sinners if you're a fool if you're a sinner trouble in life is going to find you but the righteous the god-fearing the intelligent the ones who walk accordingly will be rewarded with prosperity that doesn't necessarily mean financial prosperity it means the good of life whatever you are looking to do whatever you're looking to accomplish, you're going to prosper in it. Verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, don't misread that. It is not saying that if you don't leave an inheritance to your grandchildren, that means you're not a good man. You have to look at the contrast. The contrast is between what happens to the money of a good man versus what happens to the money of a sinner. The wealth of the sinner, he's going to lose it. He, in his foolishness, is going to make bad deals. He's going to cheat other people. He's going to spend his money. A fool and his money are soon parted. That's the way it works. So the wealth of a sinner is going to be lost by the sinner, and it's going to be stored up for the righteous. That's what's going to happen to the wealth of a sinner. It's not going to be held on to by the sinner. But the good man, the righteous man, the one who walks accordingly, is going to hold on to his money so that even when he dies, there's going to be inheritance. And that's really all it's saying. And that inheritance, if it's passed on to the children and to the grandchildren, means that it remains in the family of the righteous man as opposed to the sinner's wealth, which is going to disappear, dissipate, and ultimately be stored up for the righteous who are going to end up with it. That's the contrast. Verse 23 says, Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. That word fallow means plowed, freshly plowed land. So food is in the ground for the poor. They may get out there and just put a few seeds in the ground, but there's enough there to take care of them except that, and that is not Solomon's essential point, not about the amount of food that lays in the ground. The point is in the second half of the statement, which is, but it's swept away by injustice. He's saying there's adequate for the poor of the society. There's adequate food even in the ground. The only reason that they don't have the things that they work for is because of injustice, because of unfairness, because of people taking advantage of them. 
That was true in Solomon's day. It's true today. People will, because of their foolishness, because of their unrighteousness, because of their sinfulness, people will take advantage of anybody they can take advantage of if it will increase their own wealth. And we just heard that that wealth is ultimately going to leave them and end up in the hands of the righteous. Abundant food is in the plowed ground of the poor, but it's swept away by injustice. And then he who spares the rod hates his son. It is necessary, as we've been saying repeatedly tonight, it's necessary to correct, to discipline your children. And that is an act of love. If you leave them without correction or discipline, they're going to grow up to be fools, to be self-sufficient, to be know-it-alls, to think nobody can correct them. And those are the people who Solomon keeps saying over and over, they're going to end up in hardship, they're going to end up in difficulty, they're going to end up losing their money. So it's actually an act of love to teach and train your children. But he who loves him, who loves his child, disciplines him diligently. That means thoughtfully, that means repeatedly, that means as often as is necessary, that means with purpose, that means in an ongoing way, that you have an end result in mind, that you're not just doing it randomly. You're doing it because you're trying to bring them up to be God-fearing, productive members of society. And that takes us to the end of the chapter, verse 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in want. I don't think this is actually talking about food. In the largest picture, Solomon is talking about the appetites, the desires. The righteous is always going to be satisfied. His desire, especially if your desire is for God, and you pray for the things that God desires, then ultimately you're pleased as God does what he desires to do. Ultimately, you're going to be satisfied in this life, your appetites, your desires in this life. Uh, One of the things that I have always liked about GCA is that we function, we operate on whatever God chooses to give us. So we have never had, and, and go check the archives, go check your memory. There's nobody in here who can say that I ever stood up here and pounded on you for money. I've never stood up here and said, you know, we're going to have to close the doors unless you each give $1,000 a piece. You get all the chicanery, the, the fundraising silliness that you see on TV or on the Internet. We've never had to do any of that. We live on whatever God provides for us. In other words, our desire, our appetite is to serve God week in, week out, to be able to meet here a couple times a week and talk about the things of God. That's our desire, that's our appetite, and God has allowed us to do that for coming up 19 years now. And so we, who I'd like to think of as being described as the righteous in this verse, we always have enough to satisfy our appetites, because our appetite is to serve God, and he has provided faithfully for 19 years what we've needed in order to do that. So there I've bragged on GCA a little bit. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. The stomach of the wicked is always wanting. Always wanting more and never satisfied. Don't you love being around people who are never satisfied? 
Boy, do they become old company fast. But he's saying here that that's the way of the world. That's the way of the fool. That's the way of the wicked. No matter what good things come their way, they're never happy. They're never satisfied. It's never enough. It's always, what have you done for me lately? It's always, what more can I get out of you? Chapter 14, verse 1, is about a woman. We're just going to try to get to verse 2 of this chapter, because I'd like to close on that. But a wise woman builds her house. That verse right there is Solomon saying that women ought to go into the construction trade. (laughs) And that's what that is about. No, that's not what that's about. What he's saying here is a wise woman, and this is not a personification. Earlier, he personified the wicked woman and the tempting woman. Here, he's saying that a wise woman builds up her household. She takes care of her household. She builds up. She's productive in very positive ways within her household. But the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. So he's not saying that a foolish woman has the ability with her own hands to rip down stone and brick buildings. What he's saying is a smart woman builds up her household. She builds up the house in the way that they walk, in the way that they talk, in the way that they conduct themselves after their own disciplines, walking after the way of the Lord. All of that is building up the house making sure that the house is happy, making sure that the house is corrected, making sure that the house is in order. All of that is the way that a wise woman works. But a foolish woman doesn't care. She's just going to let chaos rule in her house. And as a result, Solomon says that she's just tearing down her own house with her own hands. She's not instructing her children. She's not disciplining her children. She's not raising up her children in the way they ought to walk. As a consequence, she's raising a household of fools. And they're going to end up losing all their money. And just everything's going to continue to be trouble and go wrong for the foolish woman. The wise woman builds her house. But the foolish tears it down with their own hands. And finally, verse 2. He who walks in uprightness fears the Lord. You can read that forward or backward. He who walks in uprightness does it because he fears the Lord. Or the one who fears the Lord walks in uprightness. In other words... What have I been saying all night? You are what you are. If you say you fear the Lord, then you're going to walk uprightly. Your walk is going to reflect what you believe in. And if you say you believe it, but it doesn't affect your life, it doesn't affect your walk, it doesn't affect how you conduct yourself, then you don't really believe it. And the second half of the verse says, but he who is crooked... That means one who's full of chicanery and wickedness. He who is crooked in his ways despises the Lord. So again, you are what you are. You can say, I love God and I take advantage of everybody I can get a hold of. (laughs) Does that sound like any TV preachers? Never mind. Yeah, I love the Lord, but I'm going to take advantage of everybody I can get a hold of. Yeah, well, then they say they fear the Lord, but they're not walking in a way 
that would demonstrate an actual reverence, an actual fear of the Lord and his word. Why? Because his ways are crooked. So you can read that forward or backwards. Because his ways are crooked, he despises God. He who despises God walks in a crooked manner. Both ways, it's true. But he who walks in righteousness fears the Lord because he who fears the Lord walks in righteousness. You are what you are. So don't say that you are something that you're not. If you say you're a Christian, be one. If you say you believe in God and his word, act like it. And conduct your life, which is what the walking here means, conduct your life in a way that reflects what you say you believe. Because you are a witness, an emissary of Jesus Christ here on the planet. So don't claim to be an emissary of Christ if you're out acting like, walking like the world. Make sense? Mm -hmm. All right, then. That's where we'll pick up next time we're together. Any questions? Paul's very much saying the same thing. Isn't he? When he says, uh, you know, when you were saying you are what you are, in Romans 8, he says, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. It's the identity that dictates the behavior, not the behavior that dictates and determines the identity. And we see the world now, it's very popular to flip that around. Yeah. But if you are truly, genuinely a God-fearing person, it's going to be reflected in your behavior. And it's impossible to believe that someone is genuinely God-fearing when everything about their behavior denies it. Bears good fruit. Can't produce bad fruit. It's going to bear good fruit. So that is a concept that you find all the way through the Bible, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Paul, whether it's Solomon. They're all saying the same thing, which is what I've been saying all night, which is you are what you are. Don't pretend you're something you're not. Well, then say goodbye to the Internet folks. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.